Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Christopher Hall Show, also on the Neil Haley Show, simulcast with the Neil Haley Show. I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? Again, Nobel Prize nominated uh, doctor, also an author. How are you? And we have a really exciting guest today. Chris, tell us who our guest is. Well, yeah, I'm doing great, Neil. And uh, yeah, this is uh, a really exciting time, actually, uh, of the year and, and what's going on here so far as this pandemic. And uh, I'm very excited about the guest that we have today. Excellent. So introduce him, please. Well, no problem. Well, you know, it's my honor uh, to introduce uh, one of uh, America's foremost, actually, uh, quoted cardiologists. Uh, and um, uh, so far as his research, so far as uh, what he's done, his uh, his uh, papers have been downloaded, uh, particularly uh, in, in related to the coronavirus, uh, more than any other papers here uh, in the world. And uh, and so, um, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, let Dr. Peter McCullough uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Dr. McCullough, uh, so far as your training and um, kind of what you know when this pandemic came on, what we had to do. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I'm Dr. Peter McCall. I'm an academic internist, cardiologist. I'm a trained epidemiologist in Dallas, Texas. I'm in clinical practice, spend about half my time seeing patients uh, as I did all day yesterday, and then uh, half the time doing uh, academic work. I'm an editor of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. I'm the former editor of Cardiorenal Medicine, senior associate editor of the American Journal of Cardiology. And, and I'm an author. I have uh, over 51 papers uh, on the pandemic. Uh, for COVID-19. Uh, these are uh, peer-reviewed, fully cited in the National Library of Medicine, and then 650 papers total on the interface between heart and kidney disease and other general medical topics. I do produce a report to America each week on America Out Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, and I'm a frequent contributor. A lot of your listeners will recognize me uh, to Fox News, Newsmax, OAN, uh, and the major media. And the reason why I'm so active is that I really feel that uh, myself and many in my circles, that is really, this pandemic is calling for the top doctors in America to step up and provide leadership uh, through the pandemic, interpreting data, finding new ways of treating patients, provide, preventing hospitalization and death, and now handling the issue of mass vaccination. Wow, very, 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 uh, very impressive. So, and you know, we have a lot uh, to talk about, uh, uh, but I wanted to start with some very basic questions. You know, myself, uh, doctor, I always ask these, these, these simple questions, okay? And so, uh, Dr. McCullough, tell us a little bit about kind of um, where you're from and why you decided to go into medicine. Um, I was a kid, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, but moved down when I was young to, to Texas, originally Wichita Falls in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, I went on to Baylor University. And uh, from the very beginning, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I love science. I loved the application of science to help uh, patients and people in need. And uh, I, I had no other uh, career ideas outside of being a doctor after Baylor. I went to University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, still in the probably the top 25 medical schools in the United States. I finished top of my class, AOA, and then went on to the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, at the time and still today, number one medicine training program in the United States, just ahead of the Harvard programs. And like at that, after that juncture, like many other people at the university did service, many of my fellow residents became DC officers and went into the military. I did a, a three-year period of time in rural health service in the north uh, northern part of Michigan, 
third year of that, I went to the University of Michigan School of Public Health and then on into training uh, in cardiology at what's now the William Beaumont uh, Oakland University School of Medicine. We did groundbreaking research on primary angioplasty for acute MI. We had an iconic leader there, William O'Neill. Our publications, uh, we really uh, lit up the world with our New England Journal of Medicine publications on this new way of treating myocardial infarction. And I remember great skepticism back then when we said we could get the artery open, and that was better than giving thrombolytics. Thrombolytics was controlled by the, um, by the pharmaceutical industry, uh, and we had to fight a, an uphill battle of conflicts of interest against all the major academic institutions, which were in bed with big pharma as the community hospitals were with the breaking things wide open with primary angioplasty. And here we are today now with COVID-19, uh, all the academic institutions are completely aligned with uh, the big pharmaceutical industry on the plan for mass vaccination and then selective drugs in the hospital. And we're breaking it wide open uh, with the use of uh, many drugs uh, inappropriately uh, utilized off-label, uh, uh, clinically indicated medically necessary prescription to treat COVID-19. Very, very true. And uh, and so kind of uh, what you're trying to say is that you kind of had the struggle before, and that was certainly more in uh, the sort of cardiology. Again, we will have more infectious disease. So uh, let's just ask some pointed questions uh, uh, for Dr. McCullough. And so, one of the things, uh, you know, myself being a doctor, I'm an ER physician for, for a number of years. And so when this virus first came out, uh, what we saw uh, was that pretty much patients were receiving no treatment. And um, again, so tell us, tell us about that. When you uh, encountered that juncture, Dr. McCullough, what, what did you think? I think initially what happened was uh, many doctors were fearful of getting the virus themselves. I can tell you personally, none of my patients were denied treatment. My patients that were high risk, that were high risk for hospitalization and death, from the very beginning, not a single patient was denied treatment. And you know, we think about 500 doctors in the United States can make that claim. A million doctors let the virus slaughter some of their patients. A million doctors did that. Historians are gonna record this. Wow. Historians record that doctors were gripped in fear they were paralyzed by this virus. I thought they were going to get it themselves. They were even afraid to get on the phone with patients. And then after that, things basically became what's called, now we understand it as called a mass formation psychosis, meaning that the doctors now are in a, a form of psychosis where they uh, uh, don't treat COVID-19. Uh, they do a, a very minimalistic job in the hospital. There's terrible outcomes in the hospital. And they are completely in lockstep in administering the vaccine as the only response to the pandemic as we see the vaccine uh, in wholesale failure. Yeah, I mean, that's very true. I agree. I, I totally agree with you on that. And um, and so, um, again, and, and what I saw, really, what I saw was that, uh, and something that we, we haven't really seen in history, you know, typically uh, finding novel treatments where, where, where drugs are were used for maybe off-brand drugs for other, other illnesses that, you know, that we find, uh, and our uniqueness to treat new diseases that come on, we're normally praised for those kind of things. But I saw in this atmosphere that we were threatened. Our livelihood was threatened. Our uh, certifications were threatened, licenses. And, uh, and so um, it's just, uh, and then we know now, we're seeing data that comes out now, we know how bad this vaccine is for, uh, for our organs and our bodies, our heart, the brain, the kidneys. Um, and this is all, again, related to what the, uh, uh, we know now 
uh, from a lot of study, the um, effects of the spike protein. So Dr. McCullough, speak a little bit on that. Speak about this whole thing of the spike protein. I still think the public uh, doesn't quite have full understanding. Well, we know we're in a mass psychosis because doctors and, uh, and you know, health systems and companies and schools that are recommending the vaccine, you know that they're <clears throat> in a sense kind of in a mental fog because they don't, even they don't even recognize that there's three vaccines. They say literally take any vaccine. Well, I can tell you there's three vaccines. The best vaccine for uh, preventing COVID-19 is Moderna. It's 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. It's three times the dose of Pfizer at 30 micrograms. And, uh, and then both Pfizer and Moderna are better than J&J. &J. So those in the mass psychosis are not even recommending the best vaccine to prevent COVID-19. That shows you how ridiculous this is. And do you know that? Do you know almost every health system recommends any vaccine? They actually don't even care which one that people take. Isn't it stunning? Even the federal government doesn't care, but yet there's one in every single analysis, Moderna has better outcomes than the other vaccines. Now, having said that, on the downside, the vaccines all cause a mosaic of cells that take up the genetic material. These are gene transfer technology uh, platforms. They take up the genetic material, a mosaic of cells, and it's different for each person as the lipid nanoparticles are distributed to vital organs like the brain, the heart, uh, the bone marrow. Uh, so each person's different. So their side effects are different. The cells start to produce the spike protein. This is a 1200 amino acid protein, has about 12 glycosylation attachments. It's got some uh, code in it that actually codes uh, in part for the glycoprotein for uh, HIV. It has a gain of function mutation uh, uh, human uh, a change in the uh, what's called the furin cleavage joint that was uh, devised between the U.S. government, uh, NIH, and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This dangerous 1,200 amino acid protein is actually produced within human bodies now intentionally by the vaccine-induced uh, production of the protein. And now we know everything we've learned about the spike protein since the release of the vaccines is bad. It's 100% bad. We now know the spike protein directly damages blood vessels and causes blood clotting independently. We know that it directly damages the heart. It damages pericytes, paper by Avolio and colleagues have shown that it directly causes myocarditis. And the FDA agrees with official warnings on Pfizer and Moderna. It directly causes blood clotting. And the FDA agrees as there are official warnings on J&J. &J. Uh, it directly causes other illnesses, including vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea, uh, as uh, published in multiple scientific reports, including the New England Journal of Medicine, Annals of Hepatology. It directly causes uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and the FDA agrees uh, with warnings on J&J. &J. It directly causes um, uh, uh, forms of uh, various uh, neurologic injuries, uh, additionally outside of Guillain-Barre, including Bell's palsy, uh, a spinal uh, transverse myelitis. In fact, Senator Johnson's most recent press briefing on vaccine injuries, it was a, a paralyzed orthopedic surgeon uh, who gave his testimony. So all, everything we've learned about the spike protein is incredibly damaging to the body. And I think the, 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 the shoe really dropped with a, a very important paper produced by Bruce Patterson, July 29th, 2021 in preprint, presented at the Rome uh, COVID summit in September, showing that after the respiratory infection, the S1 segment is of the spike protein is recoverable in, in CD16 positive human monocytes for up to 15 months after the respiratory infection. And now Bruce Patterson, who is a brilliant molecular biologist trained at University of Michigan Northwestern, has been a faculty at Stanford. Bruce on the McCullough Report, America Loud Talk Radio, the McCullough Report, 
on my interview this weekend, which is now in podcast currently, he basically presented the data that after the vaccine, it's even worse that the S1 and the S2 segment are recoverable in samples from people months after the vaccine. So what I'm telling you is the vaccine almost certainly gives about 15 months or more of spike protein coverage in the body with shot one and then shot two another 15 months. If you're immunocompromised, shot three another month later, another 15 months. And then once we get into every six month injections, the spike protein is gonna accumulate in critical organs like the brain, the heart, the bone marrow. And I can tell you, it's almost certainly gonna cause chronic disease. The spike protein is not a benign substance and it takes forever to clear out of the human body. Dr. McCullough, this is amazing information you're bringing out on uh, the Dr. Christopher Hall show. The concern I have is why is this not coming out more? Like that the, if we continue to do MNR, mRNA shots, that the jab, it's gonna end up really causing a lot more health issues than just stopping COVID, meaning other, other health problems are gonna happen. It, it's true what we know. I mean, some of the really concerning things beyond the chronic neurologic illnesses and uh, the myocarditis and the heart damage, as well as the hematologic syndromes, what we're really worried about is a paper from China showing that the S2 segment of the spike protein interacts with the P53 tumor suppressor gene and the BRCA gene. And women know this because the BRCA, BRCA genes related to breast cancer and female reproductive cancers. What we know there is that with progressive spike protein accumulation, we have great concerns on what's called oncogenesis or the development of cancer. And so there is a situation, there is an immediate warning uh, that's out now in the popular press and through all of our uh, various forms of communication to the world that progressive every six month vaccination is going to lead to chronic diseases, uh, almost certainly including cancers. Uh, we had word, I was on TV recently in Australia that they are planning for 14 shots per person. So that's seven years of progressive spike protein accumulation in the human body. Canada's planning on five years. Uh, this is an extraordinary loading of the human body with a pathogenic dangerous protein is going to lead to, I think, a population health disaster. Yeah, th this is, you know, this is horrible. Okay, this is horrible. Um, that, uh, you know, again, we, we, we had this early use authorization. So obviously, these, these studies were never done. Uh, there's no safety data whatsoever uh, on these vaccines. And, um, these these vaccine shots, these boosters, need to stop now. Uh, I'm not sure why uh, majority of our colleagues are uh, having this fog and this uh, psychosis. Uh, when clearly, uh, one of the things we do as physicians is we think logically and uh, we make our decisions based on the scientific method. And so, wow, this this is just incredible. Uh, but um, I tell you one thing, um, as a physician, as a doctor, as a citizen, I am, um, I just, I just feel so honored and great to have Dr. McCullough, uh, quarterbacking. Okay. Uh, in this time where, you know, this is actually the Super Bowl for doctors. Uh, and so it's just a travesty. So 
Well, you know, many doctors have taken the vaccine. In fact, they're now taking boosters. So, um, you know, I, I have a great uh, a sadness and, and, uh, and empathy for them uh, as these syndromes uh, set in. I recently uh, was sitting on an airplane and I was flying back from a symposium. I was looking at my slides and the woman sitting next to me started asking me questions about COVID. Her husband next door to her, he was in a fetal position. He looked awful. He had just taken the Pfizer booster. And I asked him, I said, you know, what's it like compared to shot one and shot two? He said, it's so much worse. <laughs> I told him, listen, get up and move around. I'm worried you're going to form a deep venous thrombosis. This guy looked terrible. And after I presented her the data, I showed her the safety data. You know, we're at over 18,000 deaths in VARES. We know from two reports, one from Rose, one from McLaughlin, that if these deaths in VARES, half of them domestic, we know that 48% 40, 40%, 50% uh, of the deaths occur within 48 hours, 80% of deaths occur within a week. Uh, they're strongly temporarily related to the shots. It's externally consistent. Same thing you see in the yellow card system and the uterus system. Uh, we know uh, from McLaughlin that 86% of the deaths have no other explanation. The vaccine is the smoking gun leading to record numbers of acute deaths. But the great concern now is that in those who survive the, the shots, that now there's gonna be this progressive accumulation of, of spike protein. And I know people are doing it in part of the mass psychosis is they think that the vaccine prevents the development of COVID-19. And what we know now is our CDC director has told us it doesn't stop transmission. We have data from Rimerisma from University of Wisconsin and the Department of Public Health there showing vaccinated, unvaccinated, they're equally as infectious. Uh, they have equal and high viral loads of the Delta variant. A Acharyan from University of California Davis showed the same thing, asymptomatic, presymptomatic, and symptomatic equal viral loads. So the vaccinated are clearly carrying around the virus and spreading it to others. We know this because in Israel, everyone's vaccinated and boosted and over 90% of Israelis with COVID-19, they've got plenty of COVID, are fully vaccinated with boosters. Uh, same thing for those being hospitalized and dying. We know from the 46th UK Public Health Service report that over 80% of those with COVID-19 and who are dying are fully vaccinated. So it's clear the vaccines uh, don't have an impact. I looked at the data carefully, and I think to be fair to the vaccines, a paper by Cohn and colleagues from the VA showed a minimal benefit on mortality, about a one to 2% absolute difference. A lot of this was selection bias. Those who take the vaccine are more likely to survive even if they don't get COVID. But the point is there was some measurable benefit through the first few months of the vaccine program, but it fell off a cliff. And what they showed in the cone study by February, the vaccine protection absolutely fell off a cliff. And two things happened then. In February, most people who took the vaccine hit a six-month anniversary. We now we have 22 studies showing the vaccines run out of gas after six months. They don't have any protection. And then the second thing that happened by September is we're fully shaded in on Delta. The Delta variant is largely resistant to the vaccines, particularly Pfizer. This is amazing, wow. Dr. Hall. And it's stuff that we've been talking about on the show and I've been hearing, but we're hearing it from the horse's mouth from his research and what you've been seeing, how can people that, I guess we're seeing a split now in this country, right? If someone should become vaccinated or not vaccinated, are you seeing many doctors like yourself speaking out or are they fearful of, of speaking out about what you've been finding? Most doctors, their thinking isn't clear enough to speak out. So they're confused. Again, they're in this mass psychosis. They know they're doing something wrong. They know something is wrong. 
but they're almost like in a trance. It would be similar to the Nazi Germany doctors who were performing eugenics and other things. They kind of knew at a at a brainstem or midbrain level that that they were doing something wrong, but they couldn't it couldn't get to their consciousness. Uh, so uh, we we see it all the time. Doctors can't. Uh, they can't engage with a doctor who's got a clear interpretation of the data. In fact, millionaire Steve Kirsch in our circles who funded the uh, COVID-19 early treatment fund and now the COVID-19 vaccine injury fund. Steve has gone around to medical school after medical school, public health agency, one after another, and has invited them to a round table to just have a discussion on vaccine safety and efficacy. And if they show up, he'll give them $2 million right on the table. Do you know no one will do it? No one will show up and make the case that the vaccines are safe and effective. So in their, again, deep in their brains, they know something is wrong. They know the vaccines don't work and they know they're not safe. And no, obviously no one uh, is, is uh, convinced enough to show up and claim $2 million. That should tell you a lot. Definitely. That, um, I'm sorry, definitely. That tells you everything, okay? When you start to put your money where your mouth is, that's when you start to, to get the truth. And so, you know, kind of um, a quick summary of what we've learned from, from Dr. McCullough. And, I, and I'll just make a, a number of points here. And obviously very uh, impressive and uh, uh, a, a physician with a lot of years of experience. And, uh, and so this spike protein is a product of the gain-of-function research in a Chinese lab. Again, we're injecting that uh, uh, the mRNA that codes for this protein. And this is something, again, that we've never done ever, ever in the history of this world, okay? So the spike protein is a toxin. It's deadly. It deposits uh, in the brain, in the heart, uh, deposits in the, uh, the ovaries because of the, uh, the phospho-nanoparticles uh, is what we're finding. And so, yeah, pregnant women also are, are having miscarriage and are being affected. And so now what we see are these mandates, these mandates, which, again, are removing our rights. And for some reason, they're targeting the, the young kids. And we know, again, that uh, we, uh, uh, and Dr. McCullough can speak to this, I'm sure, that we've seen uh, a lot of uh, cases of myocarditis in the young kids. And so this is clearly one of the reasons why, uh, not only that, again, just the risk profile of, of what happens to children when they get this, 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 this virus, where they don't end up uh, severely sick or ill. And so uh, the risk is, is worth giving a, a young kid this vaccine. So um, what do you think about that, uh, Dr. McCullough? You, you can say a couple words on that, and then um, I guess we can uh, maybe get a summary. I'll give, well, we'll give a summary here. So, for the pediatric, yes, for the pediatric yes. meetings in September and October, the FDA heard these analyses from expert presenters in my circles, including uh, David Wiseman, who's a former uh, J&J scientist, a vaccine expert, uh, Kim Witzak, who's a, a public health and patient advocacy uh, um, expert, and many others who presented, uh, Peter Doshi, who's the associate director of the um, uh, British Medical Journal. We're talking top flight people. The analyses basically were the following. Tracy Hogue from UC Davis, uh, UC California Davis showed that a young person aged 12 to 17 is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis due to the vaccine than ever be hospitalized due to COVID-19, the respiratory illness. And Ron Kostaf showed in Toxicology Reports published peer-reviewed literature at any age, one is more likely to die with the vaccine 
than taking your chances with COVID and dying with COVID. And that's due to what's called determinism, meaning when you take the vaccine, it's in your body, you can't get it out. If you pass on the vaccine, it doesn't mean you're going to get COVID. The people contemplating taking the vaccine now are still susceptible. They've gone nearly two years in dodging COVID. Some people are going to dodge COVID forever. They're never going to get it. So, um, we know that uh, the FDA didn't dispute these analyses. And shockingly, what Dr. Rubin said, and he's the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I can tell you I'm the editor of another major journal, and I'm also uh, uh, you know, at, a, at, a, at one of the highest echelons of all the academic doctors in the world. So I'll just tell him directly, what he said was reprehensible. What he said at the meeting was, the only way if we're gonna find out about safety with the vaccines is to go ahead and try them in the kids. And he was commenting about children age five to 11. And we know in that age group, there's no clinical benefit. The registrational trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, recently. And I can tell you, there was no benefit. The vaccine basically prevented a few cases of the sniffles. There was no comment on spread. There was no serious illness in either the placebo or the vaccine group. The kids basically had less than a, a common cold with COVID-19. We would never subject kids to a vaccine uh, with that. What's part of the mass psychosis is to be honest with you, the vaccines aren't, not, aren't for the kids benefit. The kids are being positioned as human shields. And in this distorted psychotic thinking, the masses of adults are saying vaccinate the kids and make them human shields uh, in this fear-driven psychosis that if the kids all get blasted with the vaccine, somehow that would protect the adults. Which it doesn't because you could still transmit. It's already out there, Peter and Dr. McCullough, and you're seeing flat out that's the reason. All right, uh, Dr. Hall, summarize uh, Peter McCull Dr. Peter McCullough, please. Well, no problem. We know uh, we've just actually been been graced, okay, with the uh, the presence, okay, of a foremost uh, expert here on um, COVID nineteen uh, infection, uh, the treatment of it. Again, uh, Dr. McCullough, he is the um, orchestrator of the McCullough Protocol, okay? Uh, the multifaceted um, sequential drug treatment, uh, treatment uh, for COVID. And so um, um, I would just like to thank Dr. McCullough for, for coming on the show today and for being a, a champion okay, of this cause for America uh, because clearly what he's done, his, his protocol, the McCullough Protocol has cut down that projected death rate. The CDC had projected that 1.7 million Americans would die, okay? But with Dr. McCullough's protocol, the number is at seven, 700,000. And so uh, it's just uh, awesome what he's done. So thank you, sir, uh, for coming on the show and for being a, a champion for Americans uh, and American hero for this cause. Thanks for having me. We appreciate it, Dr. McCullough. Take care. Best place people can connect with you is go where? Go to America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. All right. Thank you, Dr. McCullough. Take care. Bye-bye. All, right. All, right. All right. That was the Dr. Christopher Hall Show, guys. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Light and Morning Podcast. I'm excited to welcome program Margo Lemmark. Margo, what's going on? And good grief, right? That's good what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Good grief. Let's talk about that. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You're like, I never, I, I mean, what an interest. <laughs> An interesting little phrase. We've heard that forever. Oh, good grief, you know. But I really understand now what good grief is. And that's why I made my title that way. Because 
you know, the whole book is about grieving. The whole thing about death is about grieving. Um, we grieve so often in our life. And one day I was grieving my brother, the reason I wrote this book, and I literally cognized the reason for grief and the way to grieve in the process of grieving. And so that's, that's what I want to explain to people because it is really an important process. Um, you know, when our hearts are just broken open, when someone dies broken open in grief, we are never more authentic than that. That's what I believe. You, you know how when you grieve, you're just, you're just wide open. You're crying in front of people. You're saying things. Your just heart is just gushing with emotion. And there is never a time in our life, I don't think, that we are more integrated in our mind, body, and emotions. And we're just simply in this genuine place of pure love. And that's what's interesting about it because we're so sad you know, that it breaks our heart open. But if we grieve properly, that love is going to turn into the most beautiful part of us. And that's why I think this chapter in my book is so important. It's two pages, but it's just power packed. Um, you know, we need to grieve. We need to go through it. We need to cry until the tears are gone. We don't have to be strong. We're not. We're weak. We're, we're opened up. We're vulnerable. We're everything. And we need to, to, to surrender to the process of grief so that we grieve properly. Um, so let me just tell you the experience I had at my brother's funeral. I, I saw people just kind of staring off into space you know, imagine yourself, you know, when you're, if you're at somebody's funeral and you love that person, you know what I'm talking about. You just kind of stare off into space, yeah. but it's not a spacey stare. It's very specific. You're remembering something about that person. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You yeah. Think, yeah I, I totally know what you talk about because when my father passed and, you know, I was basically going through this and said this is so real and then when I was I didn't do the eulogy but I did one of the you know uh to speak about my father and everything in life it was just like wow I mean something I can't believe he's with us right now but I can't believe he's gone and we exactly. it's still you know two three years later and still at times I get break into tears when I think about him so, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's just the weirdest things or weirdest conversations or certain conversations brought up and said, Hey, I, that reminds me of my father. And see, uh, that's what I'm talking about. That exact same thing. You, all these memories, right. Flooding into you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're at a funeral or just in your life at times, I, I, I think you probably still experience it where you're kind of staring off thinking of your father and you're, you're intentionally seeing him in your mind and remembering a specific moment when you're with him. And, you know, we try to hear their voice, their laugh and what, what we did the last time we were with them. You know, we try to bring back this memory. It just sort of floods us. And, you know, 
when we do that, we simultaneously, what we're doing by doing that is we're metabolizing them into our heart. You know, we think we only metabolize food we, or digest food. Well, we digest everything that comes in our life, whether it's seen or unseen. And that's, we found out that with COVID, unseen things get digested and we get sick. Unseen things get digested and we feel good. So we metabolize them into our heart. Um, we remember something about them. We grieve yes. that memory. Like you, you remember something about your dad and you'll sit there and kind of think through it and see it in your mind. And then you start crying, like you said, and then another one comes up and we grieve that. And, um, as we remember memories, we incorporate them into our heart. We remember, we grieve, and we incorporate it. We remember, we grieve again, and we incorporate that. And this goes on and on until the, the grieving actually subsides. And once they're fully incorporated, you might say, within our heart, the grieving becomes less and less because they're established in our heart, and everything is sort of reorganized in our heart, and they live within us. They live on in our heart. And that's why that process, we shouldn't deny it. Like if you think of your dad and you start crying and just say somebody comes up and says, oh, don't cry, be a man. That, that is wrong to disturb that process um, because it's such an important part and it will subside naturally. And I found that the memory in our heart is what connects us to eternity because they're forever there. And so that's our connection to, their to the divine. It's our connection with them. They never leave us, even though we let them go. And the depth of our grief becomes the depth of the joy we feel on the other side of the grief. And that's what I meant by that deep grief turns into something absolutely exquisitely beautiful in us. And it's their gift to us. That's their real gift to us, is that grief turns to joy in our heart. You live on with a much fuller heart. So when do you expect that grief to ever disappear? Well, it's really interesting question, Neil, because here's the thing. Some people feel guilty when they stop grieving. They think they need to keep grieving so that person knows they love them. But I'm going to remind you of a quote that I put in my book. In fact, let, here, let me, let me just find it right here. Hold on. Here it is. Let, let me remind you what Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said about grieving, because I think this is absolutely a brilliant and enlightened understanding of grief. So listen to this. Here, I just pulled it up. Grief is natural. At first, when the grief is deep and sharp, these emotions allow the soul to feel that they were deeply loved. It is also natural that the grieving should taper off, allowing the soul to feel that their passing was not a drag on our life. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. So, so your dad it, knows you love him because you, you grieve so deeply and he's feeling that and he knows that he sees the depth of your love. But if you kept just pulling those memories, like consciously doing it, said, I've got to keep grieving my dad, I feel guilty if I don't. And you kept doing that, he'd go, oh my God, I was a drag on his life. So and you I, don't want him to feel that. So only if it comes up in specific times, it's okay to tear up. It's okay to remember and constantly, instead of you know continuing to grieve to the point where you uh, just don't, you can't function in certain things, and that's where whatever that time period takes till finally the grieving process is over, and then it's just memories and times that we're going to tear up forever. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. And those times, once the once the grieving process has tapered off, because you've gone through this good grief process, uh, once that's tapered off, um, they know that they're not a drag on your life, you know, and that they weren't a drag on your life. They they recognize that is your deep love for them, and then they get to move on. You move on. They move on, and and they know they're going to see you again, and hopefully you do now that hopefully people that have read my book will realize that they'll see these people again because my main message in the book, as you know, was we don't die. Their soul lives on, and so you will see them again, and that's that's the joy of just living with that memory inside of you, and and I mean, I, I think right now I'm thinking of my father, and I just think, oh my God, the love I have for him, and the grieving is over, and I just feel so much love, and can't wait to see him again. I mean, I, I don't want to die this soon, but when the time comes, I'll see him, and it'll just be so glorious and wonderful, you know? That's the power of of what we have in our lives and to look back at specific people and situations for sure. And uh, so the grieving process can take months. It could take weeks. It could take uh, some people less time. It just all depends, right? That's right. And as long as you go through it naturally, let it come and don't interrupt that process. Let it go. You know, once you start crying, you, you, at one point you don't cry and cry and cry for a week. You, you cry and then you let go and, and you go through that really naturally and don't feel like you have to be strong or anything, but also don't feel guilty when it naturally starts tapering off because that's the whole process of incorporating them into your heart so that they live there forever just beautifully. Wow, it's, it's uh, such great information. I guess some quick, real quick tips for grieving, especially when you lose a loved one, what would be the first type of thing that you would think to provide for people to help them through this process? Um, I, I would say don't feel bad about the grieving and know that the grieving is just another form of love. Your heart is broken open. It's, it's like falling in love the same mechanics, but a different experience of love. It opens your heart in the same way. Because when you fall in love, your heart just breaks open. And you're just like giddy and you're all of this stuff. It's the same mechanics. So, so actually kind of love the process, love the love, love the grief. Do you know what I mean? Just, just it's okay and just sort of love it. It's just a different form of being in love. Because your heart is broken open in love. It's beautiful. Uh, powerful information. Looking forward to the Light Morning podcast. We kind of delve into different topics in deeper points because we've gone through the book. But people could purchase the book right now by going to lightinthemorning.com or it's available on Amazon. But Margo, you speak so well of this information and you really are giving people hope and understanding because they need to hear this from someone of how to go through this process because we all don't know about it. So it happens to us. And then once it happens to us, we become numb in certain ways. We deal with different ways and people grieve different ways. And especially if it was sudden or expected, it doesn't matter. It's death. And we have to learn how to move on, but love our loved ones afar till we see them again. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly right. All right. So I appreciate it, Margo. And we'll talk again next week for another Light in the Morning podcast. Okay. Wonderful. Have a great week, Neil. You too. All right. That was the Light in the Morning Thanks. podcast, guys. Take care. We're back to the Neil Haley show. And this area is something that 
we talk about cybersecurity and what's happened, my expert today is going to really tell us what we should look out for, but also that a lot of things we don't think about until it happens to us, we really are not protecting our security. So I'm excited to welcome the program, Sandra Estock. Sandra, how are you? And uh, how did you get involved in the cybersecurity game? Tell me how that happened and, and you know how this is your passion that you want to help people and educate people about cybersecurity. Course. Well, I'm. Thank you for for inviting me, and I'm so excited to to share my message and to be here with you, and your listeners. Um, because cybersecurity, cyber safety, technology, pretty much around us all the time. I mean, it. You touch your phone, you your computer, like screens are everywhere in your daily life, whether it's personal or work. Um, now, to answer your question about how did I start it. My journey started with cybersecurity becoming very personal. And that's where my power and my passion comes from because I was a victim um, before even stay, you know, being in the industry. And I, I moved to the United States in 2005. And just want to share with you and your listeners um, my, my, my short story. But um, I was returning from visiting my mom the year after I moved to the United States. I, um, I was in the plane and Homeland Security officers board the plane. So I, I didn't know why or what. I, I just handed my passport at the time I had a work visa. And next thing I know, Neil, I'm the only one march off the plane by Homeland Security. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm walking and getting to that room, you know, the, the immigration room, the famous room, and there are no phone calls. You can't talk to anybody. And my husband was waiting for me in Chicago. I had a connection and I was about to miss that connection when, um, you know, my, 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 will say my world changed that day. Um, I spent in that room 10 hours and they, you know, returned my passport and my passport was revoked. Um, I went back to Venezuela where I'm from um, and I had a lot of support from attorneys and my, my former employer and we're trying to get, a, you know, my, a new visa so I can go back to the country. And I'm in the interview and the officials in the embassy kept asking me, why were you in China? Who do you know in China? Who is your contact? And I'm, Neil, I've never been to China. Right. I'm like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm like, you know, mm -hmm. being interrogated. I'm like, this is what's happening. Like my world changed so fast. And um, the reality was for me, um, a cyber monster, which is how I call them, um, stole my identity and was smuggling women into the U.S. using my name. Oh, my gosh. So that happened. Um, and, of course, everything changed from that moment. I, you know, that situation, I will say, almost broke my marriage, my career. And it took a really a, a severe toll on my mental health and, and my well-being. Um, I wasn't in cybersecurity, so I didn't even know how, like, what to do, what, what was happening. And for six years, I was in that situation, and I have to prove that I was the real me over and over. 
so my story, uh, and I, you know, you might think, well, it's not, it cannot happen to me. I don't travel. I'm not a foreign. And, but the, the sad thing is it happens every day. It happens to many people. Um, in fact, there is a stat from, from a study done that in the United States, there is a victim of identity theft every two seconds. Oh, my. Really? So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So right now there is someone out there that just became a victim. Wow. And another one. And if you think about that, and it really can change your life. Um, so that's why I'm very passionate. I, you know, later on, I joined the cybersecurity and, and uh, feel, and I really connected all the dots. Like, you know, when someone turned to light, I felt that way in my brain. Like I finally understood what happened to me. And most importantly, what you know how can what can we do to prevent it because i don't i don't believe there's a lost cause and that you have to feel and go through the pain of being a victim to you know to take proactive actions because it's not fun when you have to do it reactively no so once you so you got trained in cybersecurity after that you said this is your mission to learn all about cybersecurity so yes. what, what is your, tell us a little bit about cybersecurity, what you do for cybersecurity now. Mm-hmm. So I work in the corporate environment. So my, my background was in information technology. So for 20 years, and then I, in, in cybersecurity, entering that field, I was brand new. So there are many aspects of cybersecurity, you know, compliance, um, uh, cybersecurity for manufacturing, cybersecurity for training and awareness, cybersecurity for risk management. So I, I dove into all these areas um, for about, and privacy too, for about seven, six, seven years. Uh, build programs and work in the corporate environment for private and public companies. And three years ago, I decided that it was time for me to open my own company. I found a way to protect. And really, um, it was with the, with the intention and the passion that I have for bringing a message about cybersecurity that is based on personal interaction, that is right. based on, you know, it's, like I said, it's personal. And when, when something is personal, I, I feel like I care. <laughs> yes, most definitely. So what do you do for in your cybersecurity business? How do you help people? Do you help businesses, people who, who are your... Who so you- yeah, what do I do? So I, I write. So I, I became an author. I have my Happily Ever Cyber book. Um, that is a way to simplify cybersecurity concepts, mix it with my story. Because one thing that I... I I don't know if it happens to you, Neil, but um, becoming an entrepreneur and having your company, it's like the biggest self-development job. <laughs> it is, no doubt. And it's always changing. It's always, it's always changing. Ever changing. And, and you have to monitor and adjust and adapt to where the competition, the factors, who your customer base is, all that. It's just that it, yes. you know, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an interesting game. So like, it's not this constant stay the, stay the course because- you got to make changes. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So for me, it was discovering who am I serving, like marketing and social media, all these different things. Like I had no idea. I was, uh, you know, someone behind the scene most of the time in my right. IT role. Right. And then in cybersecurity, you really are even 
further removed from right. marketing and sales and all of that. Exactly. So that, you know, being in front of people or in a camera or in a social media, I was like, I uh, don't want to be out there. It's, it's a challenge. It's if you get yourself out there, it, it, it's it's a process and it doesn't happen overnight for sure. And it's it something does. that you just got to be confident and start developing. So um, your 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 book uh, yes. also is a, a business too. Do you serve? Yeah. So my yeah. So my my services are a, a rate of services. So I have the books um, for it's a book series for anyone that wants to learn about cybersecurity in a non-technical way. Right. And then along the way, um, what I discovered was also children. Children are one, you know, there are 1.3 million children every year that become victims of identity theft and cybercrime. Oh my gosh, wow. So, um, so, you know, children are so special and they, they are in this world. And I, I believe that if you early start practicing cybersecurity and ants and ankles with kids. They, the kids can learn um, for cybersecurity to be second nature. It's like, you know, you, you teach your kid how to brush their teeth. Right. Like you might have to tell him, you know, over and over. I have a grandson and oh my God, it was a process to convince him why he needed to brush his teeth. And we were like finding different ways. Um, as an adult, you know, hopefully you don't have to convince your spouse or your brother <laughs> or your mom to brush your teeth because it's second nature. Like we know it's important for health. It's important for, you know. For but you think the same thing kids need to know about cybersecurity and especially with TikTok and all these dangers where they give them. Absolutely. And all that, and you're educating. So you're serving that. Is do you have a book on that, or your? Yeah. yeah. So so I have a book series for children. So using fairy tales. So the three little pigs. Everyone knows that story, right? Yes. So the power of a strong password is how I explain how you you know you don't want to have a, a password that is made of a or is made of you know you want the brick password and explaining that concept is beautiful through that you know fairy tale and the same for explaining about impersonators online so the fairy tale that came to mind was the the, the red the little red riding hood and you think about what what did the wolf didn't you know for the grandma right uh, the the wolf the wolf was pretending that it was grandma and then went after the little red riding hood so it's such a great point so you can't trust people online you gotta work exactly. and adults are as bad at that as well so are you serving customers as well the books or do you also have clients that you work with see yeah so i work with corporates um and whether it's a speaking whether it's an engagement with you know, for their employees and we do something special. Or I also do one on, like um, more consumers, like women, families. I have um, services that they can, you know, find a different voice and a different way to, to integrate cyber safety practices in their family. So it's the books, is the core. I have a course that is also available in my website. It's called Inner Cyber. And it's, 
again, it's all the concept about cyber safety to be personal, to be something that um, you can easily implement and, and integrate in your daily activities. Okay. All right. So this is great information that you're uh, giving us. Uh, give us like two or three tips right now to improve mm-hmm. our cybersecurity. What should we do? Yes. So, you know, super simple, Neil. Uh, I like simple. Um, okay. when, when, when you get an email or a text message or anything that has a link or is insisting in you to click or yeah, last, you know, this is the last time you're going to see this message or what, you know, whatever tactic you see that, that is asking you to click or to take an action. What I I want you to do is just pause that simple (laughs) just for a second. And in really when you pause and you breathe, you start noticing and you just, just, just pay attention to that email. Do you even know that person? Is that something that you recognize? Are you waiting for that information? Mm-hmm. And when you ask those questions, it really activates that part of your brain that you're like, oh, I don't know this. I never bought this product. Exactly. I never, I don't yeah. have a package. I don't even own this, like update your antivirus. And like, I don't even own it. Like how, like there's so many things that when we took, we take those few seconds, it can really tell us um, whether that person is a scammer or not, or a cyber monster. So simple tip, pause and breathe. Okay. I think we all can do that. Okay. Um, so the second, the second um, tip that I have is with your passwords. Um, I use a phrase to make me happy, to keep me engaged. So instead of having passwords that are boring or repeated that put you in danger, I, you know, I strongly <laughs> invite you to consider writing your a phrase that really changes the tone of your day. And use a password manager for the rest of the passwords. You don't have to learn all the passwords. Just use that technology that is out there to help you. Um, and then the last technical tool, I guess, that, um, or the last tip that I, that I have for you is <clears throat> whenever you go online or whenever you, you want to use your computer, your phone or anything, be intentional. And mm-hmm. I have a, a, a framework, I, I, you know, it's called the I am framework is I am intentional, I am aware and I am mindful. And when you go online, just ha- what, what are you doing? Ask those questions. Be aware of what surrounds you and be mindful. You know, what are the actions that you are taking in that moment? And, and the more you protect your security and so many people and, you know, have those uh, two-factor authentication on yeah. everything, all these things, just having these things I've learned from colleagues, hey, it's important because if you don't, it's, it's going to be a big problem. And the more you protect yourself online, you just don't know what's out there and how many people are looking to take your information and utilize yeah. different things. And people just have to be mindful of that fact, especially passwords and all. So I appreciate that. Where's the best place we can find information on you, purchase your books and learn more about you? Where can we go? Yeah. So you can go to sandraestock.com. Right. And in fact, if, yeah, so go to sandraistock.com and I have a checklist 
for for your for your listeners because you know I, I agree with you Neil there are so many tools that you can implement so you can check out how you're doing you know with your social media how are you doing with your your, your identity how are you protecting your social media so um so I have those free checklists that you can just check out and and see how you know what can you implement and it's super simple and um, sandraestock.com and yeah we appreciate you coming by. Great information. We're going to definitely look at other times to talk cybersecurity with you, but everyone should be afraid of what is out there and the biggest danger when you're online or anything. And the, educating your kids on this, so important for them to make sure that they have and all these things because you never know who oh, absolutely. is there. So I appreciate you coming by. Thank you, Neil. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. Oh, 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 oh.